Father, thank you so much for your people tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. May you bless tonight. May you guide us by your Holy Spirit. May you give me the mind of Christ. Give all of us the mind of Christ. We have it, but let us appropriate it so that we can think your thoughts, Lord, the high thoughts of God, that we might have the implanted word come into us and and just show us um, who you are and who we are in Christ and who we can be as we grow more into his image. We just lay tonight at your feet, Father, and pray that your will would be done that you would shape our hearts and mold us and shape us as the master potter. You are the potter. We are the clay. Mold us and make us. That's what we pray tonight, Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, uh, verse 29. Before I read that, I want to just share with you a little bit on a personal note. Um, When I became a Christian, I was uh, in my early 20s. And I don't think I realized um, at the time that I was a non-Christian how sinful and selfish I really was, how I saw um, everything through a particular lens. And when I met God, um, when God saved me, I should say, there were so many different things that God was teaching me, um, sermon by sermon, week by week, day by day. Um, He was teaching me things about myself. He was teaching me things about Him. Um, Some of them were painful to look at. Some of them were... Um, uh, things that I wrestled over and still today, um, almost 20 years later, I can tell you I'm a man in process. So when I stand behind this hunk of wood, either on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, I want you to know that um, I have not arrived and these are things that I'm still working on. And um, I don't want to give any false impressions, um, especially in light of our subject tonight, which is the subject of making restitution. Because I can tell you from the get-go that it's not necessarily something I'm good at. Um, It's it's hard to go back to some places. It's hard to go back to some people that either you've hurt or that maybe you made some poor decisions in the past and try to make amends or make those things right. I know, um, Alan, I'm sure you wouldn't have a problem with me saying since this was part of your testimony, but there were some things I think that you went back and did. Is that part of your story? Um, that was you that that did say that. Um, well, you can yeah you can say it, but um, I'll tell you what. Since we're recording, and you got a, you got one minute. <laughs> no, actually, just a few months, maybe even weeks after I went back to church in '94, uh, God revealed to me that there was there was four things that He wanted me to make right in my life, and it took me about. Actually, it was a year later, and I, I I told him at that time I would do it, but a year later I still hadn't done it, and I was driving down the street, and it was like uh, Woody Woodpecker on the old head, you know, just banging on your brains, and look, I haven't forgotten, and the very next morning I made a phone call to the very first of the four, and actually that was uh, Edison. I had a I had a swimming pool, trying to make it quick, had a swimming pool, turned my meter upside down so it would run backwards to spend less money during the week, during the times that I really wanted to use it. And I called them and I told them, I said, uh, I was nervous. I, man, I was like walking around. I was pacing around the telephone and I I talked to the lady on the phone and I said, you know, and I kind of stammered and stammered around and I said, you know, look, I came 
I have become a Christian, and this is something that God wants me to do. And I explained to her what I did, and she said, yeah, God makes you do stuff like that, don't he? <laughs> and I'm thinking, geez, not only did I obey him, but he gave me a Christian on the other line. She said, okay, we'll get in contact with you. Um, um, five minutes later, another person calls from Edison, went over the story a little bit. She said, okay, uh, I just wanted to get, make sure we had the information right. And it's been 13 years, and I haven't heard from her since. <laughs> so, you know, God is good. <laughs> And there were there were three other things there, but we won't uh, we won't let <laughs> Alan expose everything tonight. It's always easier to use other people's stories. It gets me off the hook, so that's why I did that. Now, but but it was it was, that was something that was implanted in my mind when you spoke that night, Alan, about four specific things that God had pointed out that He wanted you to make amends on in light of your conversion. And I thought that that was really poignant, um, especially in light of the few scriptures I want to start off with. Romans 8.29 says this. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Um, This particular verse talks about God calling us in predestination specifically to become conformed into the image of His Son. And when the Bible uses the word image, it's not talking about the fact that God wants you to look physically like the historical person of Jesus. The idea of the image of God, man being made in the image of God, is that we have some of the moral characteristics of God. We, ad- we do not have His omniscience. We don't have his, what's called His non-communicable attributes. We are not omnipresent. We are not all-knowing. Uh, we are not omnibenevolent. Um, we are not any of the omnis uh, applied to God. But we do have certain characteristics that God wants to shape into His image. Originally, when man was created, he was made in the image of God. And man still has the imago Dei from the Latin. We are made in the image of God. Yet that image has been largely marred by sin. And so when we come back into fellowship with God, God immediately begins working on that image. You know, the world uh, today says image is everything, but the world's idea of image is how people perceive you. But God has a much deeper work to do. God is concerned about uh, doing something on the inside that then impacts the outside. He always starts from the inside out. He's not worried about what people see uh, when your picture's taken or, you know, when your best smile's put on in the best uh, context. He's worried about changing someone from the inside out. So God's in the conforming business. We've, we've often used the picture of renovation or restoration. Uh, maybe you can think of cabinetry or something like that where God is chiseling away. Um, there's one other passage I want to show you as we get going tonight. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And Paul has spent um, the bulk of Ephesians 4, the latter half of Ephesians 4, talking about the new self. Uh, If you turn over to Ephesians, and I'll just give you a a couple quick highlights from chapter 4. Ephesians uh, 4, just look at verse 20... 
1. If indeed, Ephesians 4.21, you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, Ephesians 4.22, you lay aside, now he's talking to Christians and he's saying this is how you used to be, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then he talks about characteristics of that. He says, speak truth, don't tell lies. He says, be angry, verse 26, but don't sin. He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. He says, don't steal anymore, verse 28. He says, don't speak in the wrong way, in verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the spirit. Let all bitterness, 31, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do you imitate a divine being that is above all of us? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. How in the world can we do that? I have news for you. We cannot But the Spirit of God, as He has control over me, and He begins to mold and shape me into the image of Christ. Now, in the new self, I began, I begun, uh, begin, I should say, to act and to reflect that image. I am not producing the image. I am not producing the power to act that way, but it is God in me, the hope of glory, that's teaching me the new way of life. And there, that is how I bear the image, and I am conformed to the image of Christ. And it is a process. It's the, the technical theological word is the process of sanctification, wherein God is working in your life and my life to make me more like Jesus Christ. Now, the subject matter tonight is making restitution. It's found back in Exodus 22. But I wanted to set the table that way because I wanted to encourage you that this is a process and that the Spirit of God is working in all of our lives. And this is one of the laws of God. And we are not under law but under grace. But certainly, these laws reflect the character of God. In other words, everything from Exodus 20, after we see the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then we see the laws expounded upon are reflections of God. God gave this law because this is how He wants people to act. Now, Christ came because He knows we fall short of always acting this way. But these are still the laws of God. They are still the divine standards. This is still what God wants and what He wanted of His people. Now, Last time we were together, we left off in verse um, 32 of Exodus 21, actually. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. So let's go go Exodus 21, verse 33. This will pick up the train of thought. 
And if a man opens a pit or digs a pit, and if you weren't with us last week, we were dealing with personal injury laws. We talked about um, the avenger of blood. If somebody committed murder, there, were, there was uh, someone who would actually go after them from the family. There were cities of refuge. People went to them under certain conditions. You can get the CD from last week. But now it's going to go into some things about making amends or restitution. He says this, if the ox, uh, verse 33, I'm sorry, if a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit, the New American Standard says, shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead animal should become his. How do you like that? And if one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally. And also they shall divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously, this is always a funny statement, in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall become his. So God had all these specific laws now that are laws that expound upon the Ten Commandments. He says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, 22.1, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So here's the rule of the five to one or the four to one. This is the law of making restitution. Four times paid for the sheep and five times paid for the ox. Now, if you're interested in the original languages, the Hebrew word for making restitution is shalom. It's not shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. But this is the Hebrew word shalom. And it interests me that the word restitution has the word rest in it. And I was thinking that, you know, when we have things in our lives that maybe are chewing at us, um, unresolved things, I think part of the reason God tells us to resolve unresolved things is because we don't have rest when we don't resolve things. And so restitution is an interesting word because you can immediately think of the the idea of rest. And you know when you've got some situation, some person that's eating away at you that you have an opportunity perhaps to make right, but you haven't for whatever reason, for whatever excuses. And remember, I qualified this at the beginning to tell you that I have not arrived in this area and I'm going to reiterate that. But when you, when you do that, you have something that eats away at you. Jesus said, you know, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he talked about going to the altar with your gift. But he said, if you know that your brother has something against you, leave the gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. He talked about that priority. Now, that was said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is some three chapters of very difficult things that the Lord is saying. And I think he took the law and even made it harder in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love your enemies, you know, uh, give to those who hate you. You know, all these things that you just wonder, how can a person do these things? And I think the Lord make it, made it even more difficult in the Sermon on the Mount to elevate the reality of our need for God, that we can never meet these expectations in our own power. We can never really carry out the law, as it were, in our own strength. So the word shalom means to reciprocate, to complete, to make amends, to be at peace, to make peace with, 
to be finished or ended, to make good, to pay, to repay, or to be requited. This is the law of restitution. And this is what we're going to read about in the rest of this chapter. Now, as I was thinking about this subject, though, and I was thinking about the fourfold and fivefold um, restitution that's recommended here, there was a story that came to mind in the New Testament and it's found in the book of Luke. So would you turn, hold your finger in Exodus, turn to Luke 19. And there was a wee little man who climbed a tree. Did you used to sing a song about that? How's it go, Carlene? <laughs> Wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there you go. All right. So we got songs about the wee little man. Now, the wee little man was actually a tax collector, hated among his people. Uh, the way that they made their money was they skimmed uh, uh, over the top. So uh, basically, Rome said, you know what, if you're a tax gatherer, you have to collect so much and whatever you can get on top of that is yours. We don't care. And so these people became very corrupt. They were outcasts of their own society, turncoats. Talk about people who needed to make restitution. These were hated people. And uh, the Jewish people despised them. And here we have this story in Luke 19, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, entered and was passing through Jericho. Behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. Now, he was rich because he was skimming some big time over the top. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. I can relate to Zacchaeus. Anyway... And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now remember who Zacchaeus is. Hated. I mean, the people around are probably like, what do you mean I'm going to stay at Zacchaeus' house? Doesn't he know, you know. But here he comes shimming down the tree. And he hurried and noticed he came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. If ever there was a sinner, that's the guy. How could the Lord? After all, I had a list of things I wanted to talk to him about, right? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, And if, you might want to note note this, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Where did Zacchaeus get that idea? Probably back in Exodus. And he realized, you know what? I have ripped people off. How did Jesus even know who Zacchaeus was to begin with? How did he know he was up in the tree? How did he know his name? But see, Jesus knew what every person needed, didn't he? He knew which man's heart was really torn up, which man really needed to know the Lord. And literally the Lord, you know, came to spend some time with Zacchaeus. I want you to see what Jesus says about this. First in verse 8, I want you to notice that Zacchaeus is no longer ruled by his pocketbook. He has seen the Lord and something's happened to him. And Jesus says of him, verse 9, 
Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. And then look at this next verse, which you guys know. For the son of man has not had, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Point, very important. Zacchaeus is a hated tax collector who has defrauded all kinds of people. But the evidence of his salvation was his desire to make restitution. Have you experienced this? Have you had some things come across your mind or your plate where you think, you know, before I was a Christian, this did not bother me at all. I didn't think about these kinds of things, right? But now, the Lord, you know, the four things with Alan or whatever it might be, you know, the Lord has ways of saying, this is who you are now. If salvation has truly come to your house, it will show itself, it will be revealed in your actions. It will be revealed in your conduct. Now remember, I always want to give you guys that uh, hope. It's a process. Okay, it's a process, you know, because I don't want to just, you know, sit here and beat you up and you think all the all these things. But you know what? If the Lord points something out to you tonight, as much as it depends on you, you live at peace. Romans 12 with all people. Some people, the timing is just not right. John Corson was preaching one night and he was talking about how sometimes we have issues with people and situations and you know, we might have a desire to make them right. And he used the illustration of the children of Israel going around Jericho seven times before the walls came down. And he said, you know, uh, the Lord had a plan and, and he, you know, he gave these orders and until they followed the orders day by day and on the seventh day doing what he said meticulously, the wall would not come down. But finally, on the seventh time, on the seventh day, the wall came down. And he said, you know what? It's like that sometimes in relationships and in difficulty. Sometimes the wall will come down in the perfect timing of God. And we need to be prayerful enough to understand that, you know, God's in control. And if we've tried, you know, then we've tried. But sometimes it's a matter of time. And then that wall may come down in God's time. But we need to be aware of it. We need to be marching to his beat, if you will, so we can know when he might want that to occur. If you go back to Exodus, um, I was thinking about some thoughts like this, and I had a couple things um, hanging out there with a couple different individuals. So I was praying about those things, and and I was making myself available to the Lord. But you know, you, you, you pray, and sometimes you're praying in your car or whatever, and you're thinking about people and situations. Well, I have to tell you, in the same week, right after I prayed about two different individuals, I ran into both of them in places that I never go. One situation, I ran into uh, a person and we had some unfinished business at a market. I never shop at this market. I happened to be driving somewhere and I was coming home and I decided to stop at a place that I never stop and I'm walking in the store and this person was walking out. And I just saw that as the Lord saying, you've prayed about this, the wall's going to come down now. And it was time for me to to you know, be the man I'm supposed to be and say what I needed to say. And so I did. And you know what? I felt like the rest part of restitution came. Like, okay, I can breathe now. And then another one. I was actually off um, doing something, visiting somebody, 
and pulling my car around and ran into somebody else and there was something hanging out there. And I got to go right to these individuals and say my piece and admit that, you know, I came across a certain way and maybe, you know, uh, I didn't handle things the way I should have. And they talked with me and I talked with them about different things. And I found that rest part of restitution again, that, you know what, I got it on the table and I got it squared away. And I can tell you, you know, even though um, not everything is perfect in life and there's some situations that, you know, they are what they are. But as far as it depended upon me, I wanted to do my part. Uh, And I prayed about it, and the Lord did His thing. And I'll tell you that, um, you know, it may take some time, and and you're going to have to wait on the Lord. But but God has a way of, if you desire to make something right, He will make it right for you. But He's going to ask you to do your part. And that's part of our growing up in the Lord, is that we have to understand that there's going to be times when things like that happen, And, you know, whether you're on the end where you really desire that to happen or someone else comes to you, um, I think the more we mature and grow, the more we realize that that's a healthy thing. It's never good to push something down and suppress it and let it boil over in your life. I was talking to people um, years ago about the issue of anger. And I said, um, anger is kind of like a a boiling... uh, pot of water. If you've ever cooked pasta, I'm Italian, so we like to cook pasta all the time. If you fill up the uh, the pan with too much water and you turn up the heat and you walk away, what will happen is the water will begin to boil, boil, and you put the pasta in and walk away again. Well, as the water uh, gets high and the pasta cooks and expands, sometimes the water will spill over onto the stove. And if you've ever tried to clean up uh, water that's boiled like that, it's just a mess and it makes a mess of everything. That's kind of how things are in our lives. You know, if we let, if we suppress things and let them boil over, they tend to make a mess of everything. If we put situations off, you know, again, always qualifying that with the perfect time of God. But so, God loves Zacchaeus. He he uh, evidenced salvation by his desire to make that fourfold commitment. Probably cost him a lot of money that day, but salvation had come to his house. And to him, that was more important than his bank account. And so the writer of Exodus, if you go back now, um, talks about some more things. He says, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltness on his account. So if a thief comes into your home, don't you love the practicality of the Bible? Now, today we've had all kinds of lawsuits from thieves, haven't we? The thief comes in, he's going to steal something of yours. He gets shot in the leg and then he sues the homeowner. He shot me in the leg. I was just stealing his jewels. And he sues the people and, and wins the court case. And you think, where is the justice in all of this? Right? Well, God didn't do things that way. He says, look, if the thief comes in and you kill him, look, there's no blood guiltiness. The thief came into your home, self-defense, sorry, you know, too bad. But there's a qualification just to protect the thieves. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. There it is again. If he owes, if he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Uh, I think the idea... As we move on to in this particular account here, if the sun has risen on him, I think this implies that if he came in the daytime and the owner of the house saw clearly what was going on and used 
his um, whacking this guy, for lack of a better term, as an excuse. Well, he broke into my home, so I shot him dead kind of thing. Too bad. If it was kind of done with uh, uh, precognition and premeditation, the homeowner thought it through and really didn't need to kill him, then there was some uh, adjustment for that as well. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a uh, if a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution again from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain of the field uh, or the field itself is consumed. He who started the fire shall surely make restitution. The Bible is very clear about many of these details of arson and things of that nature. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, you ever loan, loan somebody a tool or your lawnmower or something like that? If he gives, he gives him um, money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. I think the idea here is that you borrow the lawnmower, right? If the lawnmower is genuinely stolen from you, that's one thing. But if you are a little mischievous in your ways, that's another thing. So the Bible kind of deals with both those things. For every breach of trust, verse 9 whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it and he shall make no restitution. Okay, your dog comes over and I'm supposed to watch your dog for two weeks. And Fido's in the backyard happily eating his puppy chow or whatever it is. And somehow he disappears from my home. And you come home two weeks later and Fido is gone. And you're angry with me. He said, how can you do this? I love this dog. He sleeps with me at night. And he's the only one that understands me, right? Okay, well, we both go before the court. And the judges determined whether I, was, I had intent or malice or actually the dog just ran away and it was out of my control. I remember this guy told a story. It was about um, a bunny rabbit. And uh, I think the way the story goes is the, the neighbor was going on a trip, and so they were supposed to um, uh, watch over Fluffy the, the bunny rabbit or whatever. And so uh, Fluffy the bunny rabbit um, was there next door, and I guess they were supposed to feed it or whatever, and it was in its cage. But much to the chagrin of the, the homeowner who was supposed to watch over the rabbit, they found the remains of a dead rabbit. And it looked like their dog had mauled this rabbit and it was all bloody and, and it was just dead, right? Have you guys heard this one? And so the neighbor thought, oh no, Fluffy has died and my dog did it. So they, um, they uh, quickly you know, wash off the rabbit and then they blow dry it and clean it up and put it in the cage. 
And so the homeowner comes home and, and knocks on the door of the person that was supposed to watch Fluffy and says, you won't believe what's happened. I can't believe it. And he says, what, 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 what? He says, Fluffy, my rabbit is back in the cage, but it died two weeks before we left on the trip and it was, we buried it. And, you know, I guess the dog had, had dug it up or something like that. I don't know. But anyway. Okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> An oath before the Lord should be taken, verse 11. Let's move on. <laughs> it shall be made by the two of them that he has uh, not laid hands on it, as we mentioned. And he's got to accept it. He'll make no restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If something came and ate the thing up, then I guess you got to bring the parts and say, hey, I didn't do anything. I didn't take it. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. And if a man seduces a virgin, finally, the last two verses, who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. And if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry of virgins. Now the law of Moses was clear. If a person slept with another man's wife, he was to die for that. If they both agreed to that, and they both were cheating. They both went out to the gates of the city and were stoned. But if a man found a woman who was a virgin, she was not married, and he seduced her, and he forced himself upon her, then the father who found out could say to the man, you're going to marry her and you're going to pay the dowry. You're going to make it right. This is the ultimate way to make restitution. You're going to marry her. Now, we've all seen in our culture, we've been around long enough to know that things like this do happen. Young people often will do some silly things and uh, a pregnancy will ensue. And so it's time to make the ultimate restitution, right? Well, then, and I guess in this case, the father could say, you know, you're a bum, get out of here, but you're going to pay the money anyway. And they would pay the dowry price. Now, just so you understand, the dowry price for a woman in this culture was roughly equivalent to the price that you would pay for a home today. This was serious money. To get the bride to pay the dowry would cost you some big bucks. So if you did this, making restitution would be a serious matter. It would set you back big time. And this is the point of the story. Okay. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel, and I want to show you uh, one other Old Testament account where there's application. 2 Samuel. So you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth... First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those of you who learned the song could probably sing it. Second Samuel chapter twelve. Now, I thought as we were reading about the bride and the dowry that was that, that was paid, there's not 
I got to be careful with application here, but we are the bride of Christ. And you know the dowry that was paid for us, don't you? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are his bride. We are the bride of Christ. We are, the New Jerusalem is uh, described as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a beauty in that relationship. And the bride price paid for us, paid for our deliverance, paid for the dowry was the blood of Jesus Christ. But we all in our lives make mistakes. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And some of us, even after becoming a Christian, even uh, in our post, we, sometimes we say in our BC days before Christ, I did all this bad stuff, right? And maybe those are the things that come to mind. But even after becoming a Christian, even after knowing the living God, some of us have made mistakes, haven't we? And it's easy sometimes when we hear a subject of making restitution, maybe you're the kind of person, you immediately make personal application, but there's others of us that may not make that quick application. Maybe we think of somebody else. The old joke with the preachers is whenever you're talking about something that you know maybe applies to, to the wife or the husband, the other one is needling the other one. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he said there? You know, giving them a, the bruise in the side. That applies to you. That's for you. Or you're hearing a sermon preached and you, and you think to yourself, I wish my friend was here to hear this today. How desperately they need to hear this truth. I remember David Rosales kind of joking about that one time said, no, it's for you. It's for you. <laughs> it's not for the other person. Well, maybe it's for them too. But Now there was a man uh, named David. Of course, you know him as the king of Israel. Very blessed man in the Old Testament who had a big hiccup in his life. And you know what it was? He committed that sin with Bathsheba. In the time that kings should go to war, David was not at war. He was not about the business of God. He was up on his roof. He saw the beautiful woman. He took her to himself. And thus ensued this terrible time in David's life where ultimately he commits murder. He has Uriah killed on the battlefield and he marries Bathsheba. Uh, a child is uh, conceived, of course, you know, from them getting together. And so this has all happened. And now uh, in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Second Samuel, a messenger of the Lord comes to David. And I was thinking, um, just thinking of adding something else to this equation tonight. And that is that when sometimes we put off making restitution. God has ways of reminding us. God has messengers and messages. And if you're like me over the years as a Christian, um, I can remember time after time where I was working through specific situations, turning on a radio sermon and thinking, how in the world is it that this preacher is talking about this subject? Then I turn on another one, same thing's being dealt with. And it's like God, you know, has his own special channel. I don't know what it is on the FM dial, but, but he has ways to get to us, right? And sometimes when we bury something, when we put it off and God's saying, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the molder, I'm the potter, I'm the shaper, I'm the conformer, right? And my, my clay is not cooperating. Well, guess what the potter can do? He has ways of getting his message across, right? Well, this is just such an occasion. 
Because if ever there was a man who needed to make amends, it was David. But scholars believe that after the sin of Bathsheba and the, and the killing of Uriah, the murdering of Uriah, David put off making it right with the Lord for a year. He waited. He thought, I've covered it up. I'm the king. I took her to myself. He's dead now. So, you know, she's my wife now. Okay, I'm cool. I can move on. But God said, you ain't going nowhere. Because you are a man after my own heart. And men after my own heart don't behave that way. And men after my own heart who have daddies like me don't let you behave that way. Because the old saying is true. Daddy loves you enough to spank you. And so David thinks he's got away with it. No, I don't need no restitution. And God says, excuse me. Then the Lord sent, verse 1, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It almost reminds me of those little dogs today that, you know, you carry them in purses and stuff like that. I don't know if they're dogs, but anyway, sorry if I offended anybody, but... And it was like a daughter to him. This, this uh, ewe lamb was precious to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, the little pet, the little one that they loved so much, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the story, uh, you know, Nathan's come to the king. He said, hey, king, you know, just let me tell you this quick story. The rich man, the poor man, the ewe lamb, you know, he's got everything. This guy's got nothing. It's this pet, but it's taken and barbecued for this this, this uh, man on the journey. Now notice David. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Now notice this. And he must make, what's your Bible say? Restitution for the lamb fourfold. Exodus 22. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. Here's David. That man should die and he should pay four times the amount. Right? The king says, this is my verdict. And then Nathan, oh, you all know, said to David, you are the man. You see, as I'm telling you this story, David, I'm going to step aside and let you look in the mirror because when you see the image looking back at you, the image that was supposed to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a murderer, a liar, a thief, a coveter. Every commandment you can name, you have broken. You know Exodus 22 that you just quoted? The fourfold lamb repayment? I've got news for you. You broke the whole Decalogue. You are the man. Can you imagine David? I mean, he was so convinced of his cover-up plan that he couldn't see it. He couldn't see himself in the story. 
Have you ever noticed that God has ways of saying to us sometimes, No, it's you. No, it's you. What? What? No, no. No. Somebody else should pay the fourfold, right? Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Notice this. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? That's a key right there. By doing evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah. I'm going to call it what it is, says God. The Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, verse 11. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Absalom did this to David in 1 Samuel 16.22. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Now, that's heavy. But notice David's response. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is refreshing because... David didn't say, but you don't understand. See, this is, this is what the common response of an American would be. You don't understand my circumstance. You see, what happened is I was having a bad day. If you watch VeggieTales, somebody stole my rubber ducky, right? And I wanted a rubber ducky and he had one and I, right? But we don't get any of that. All we get is, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. How refreshing. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. But notice this. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Consequences follow, as has been said in the past, inexorably like night follows day. If you do something... If you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. David, I love you, God says. Your sin is forgiven, but there are consequences. Now, had David made earlier restitution, I don't know what would have happened. I can't tell you. But in Psalm 51, David gave us one of the classic um, passages on the heart that God accepts. And I want to take you there to close tonight because I think right here in Psalm 51 is where we will find what God's looking for Psalm 51 now this is a Psalm of David Uh, commentators believe this is when Nathan the prophet came to him and uh, after that he wrote this particular Psalm and this is the heart cry of anyone whom has made a mistake, seen God illuminate that mistake, and then seen what they need to do. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compa- compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That's my problem. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth where? In the innermost being. That's where God works, remember, in the heart. And in the hidden part, thou will make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken. God dealt with David in a radical way. Let them, what? Rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, and this is one of the things you lose when you don't make restitution, when you hide sin, the joy. You lose the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. In other words, God, um, after you've dealt with me, after I've learned my lesson, now I'm going to tell other people how they can be made right. Who is the best person, by the way, to testify what road you ought to go down and what road you shouldn't go down? The person that's probably been there before. Now, don't sin a bunch because you can. You think, oh, I can get a bunch of experience and I can be helpful to a lot of people. No, not a good plan. Look, for those of you who have children and grandchildren, what do you, what's your desire? You want to spare them from as many silly and stupid roads as you can, right? Your life experience and your experience with the Lord tells you, you know what, if I can keep my young one from this, I know they're going to skin their knee and all that, but if I can keep them from this path, from this bruise, from this scar, I'm going to try desperately to do that. But we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. So in some situations, the best spokesperson for why not to get a divorce is a person who got a divorce. The best spokesperson to stay away from some besetting sin like committing adultery or uh, alcoholism or whatever you want to name in your list is a person who's been there, done that, and can tell you, you know what? I've been down that road. We're at a men's breakfast and we're talking about how we have this tension between walking in the spirit but still dealing with the flesh. And the professor brought up a great point from the, the historical church. He said, one of the means of grace of the church in the past was to recognize roads that you had been down in the past and knowing where they lead when you're facing temptation. Now, sometimes when we face temptation, we think that's not a good thing. I shouldn't fall to that. I shouldn't do that. But one additional thing to add to that you know i shouldn't eat the rocky road ice cream it's not good for me but it's crying out to me it's in the freezer i shouldn't have it in the freezer any longer that would be one good move i could make then it wouldn't be calling out to me you know all that okay so we need to we need we need to be proactive get rid of the rocky road then you won't be tempted etc etc if you have cable and you you have temptations with 
flipping and watching uh, things that don't elevate your spiritual life, then maybe the cable needs to go, okay. But one other means of grace that the professor mentioned was to recognize when you're facing temptation, and maybe uh, a thing that you've done many times, is to say this to yourself. I know where that road leads me. Because sometimes in the moment when you're facing temptation, let's face it, the temptation is so powerful that you're feeling yourself being sucked into it. But one of the means of grace is to understand, okay, I've taken that road, and for some of us we could say many, many times. And every time I go down that road, no matter how good the devil makes it look, When I come to the end of that road, you know what happens? I always end up in the same exact place. And the people who have been there and done that can tell somebody, you know what? You know, like the scarecrow, which way should I go? (laughs) Should I go that way or that way? Let me tell you, I've been down that yellow brick road and it ain't pretty. Go this way. See, that's how we have to deal with ourselves now. As people who, most of you are seasoned believers, right? You've been around the Lord and walking with Him and maybe you've had your ups and downs. But you can say to yourself, I know where that road leads. That's a means of grace in the the face of temptation. And this is what David would say. He said, Lord, you've dealt with me. Now I'm going to tell sinners, 13 transgressors, thy, thy ways. And I'm hoping that sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from what? From blood guiltiness. What did he do? He killed Uriah. In essence, had him killed. O God, thou God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. Did anybody know how to worship God better than David? Why was he such a great worshiper? Because he realized how great God's forgiveness was as well. He said, I will joyfully sing O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are to make a bunch of excuses and say it's somebody else's fault. No. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. That is the thing that God is looking for. When we make a mistake, he says, guess what? Okay, you've blown it. Now what are you going to (coughs) do? Several years ago, I know you'll find this hard to believe, but I told a really bad joke from the pulpit. (laughs) And it offended some ladies in the congregation. And rightfully so. I was wrong. I was trying to bring some levity to a very difficult subject matter. And believe me, it wasn't anything terrible, but it was just not appropriate. It, it hurt some ladies. And I got a couple nasty notes right after the church service. And so I was devastated. Here I am, the preacher of the church. You know, I'm supposed to be edifying these people, and now they're writing me notes about a bad joke I told. <laughs> I said, it's somebody else's fault. I got the material from this other... No, I didn't do that. <laughs> But one of the elders, wise elder of the church, said, Michael, look, he said, you're human. You're not perfect. We all know that. The issue is not whether or not you told a bad joke. The issue is, what are you going to do about it now? 
So the next Sunday, I had to go to the pulpit. Oh, it was painful. And I had to make restitution publicly. I'll tell you what, it was not an easy thing. But I realized something in that experience, as much as I do not want to repeat that, although there's very good (laughs) probability that I might, if you've listened to me long enough. In many words, there's always the potential to stumble, right? But I realized in that moment that, you know what, my life is not about being perfect. I can't be. But my life is about trying to be as real as I can. And uh, I think if you get to that point, and you quickly can see yourself in the light of God's glory, you're forgiven, you're sanctified, you're justified. God's not going to condemn you if you make a mistake, and He's not even going to condemn you if you put off making restitution. But you will be better off, and you will become more um, like Christ if you do the things that we've talked about tonight. Amen? It's not easy. But the easy thing is not always the right thing. It's like working out at the gym. When you're doing the 15th uh, thing of curls and everything in your body is saying, stop, make restitution to me and go get a double-double. Right? (laughs) That's your flesh talking. You're saying, no, (laughs) you need to get in shape. Something like that. (laughs) So be of good cheer, people of God, brothers and sisters. God is faithful. He will see you to the end, but He is working on us. And if if He's working on you, and sometimes you feel a little pricked in a certain area, and you feel a little uncomfortable in the Spirit, waking you up at night, and you got this situation that's going over in your mind, put it before the Lord. Pray about it. And if you're sincere, I believe God will lead you to a solution of restitution. And you'll have rest. Amen? Well, Lord God, we are so grateful that you are the one that gives us rest. You lead us to those green pastures, those quiet waters, Lord. And it's not always the way we think. You don't always take us out of situations. You don't always remove circumstances. You tell us, I want you to change in the midst of the circumstance. And that's what's hard, Lord. We confess to you tonight that in so many ways we want to deflect things that come our way. We, we often want to shirk responsibility. Um, we often feel exasperated by situations and people. And we think, how can I deal with this? And Lord, we can't, but you can through us. So we pray for your perspective tonight, for your power, for your presence, for your grace. Uh, I pray tonight that your saints will uh, just revel and uh, rejoice in the loving kindness of their God, that they are not condemned, they are saved and forgiven people tonight. But Lord, you are, you love us just as we are, but you don't want to leave us that way. And so you keep shaping us and molding us. And I pray that we'll be people of integrity. Um, people who try to make things right as much as it depends upon us. And Lord, if there's someone who's hurt us and they need to come to us and we pray that you'll give us the grace to wait upon you. You'll give us a forgiving heart. 
And you'll give us um, just the patience and the perspective that we need in all situations. This world is filled with potholes. There's difficult people and circumstances and situations that grade on us. But Lord, we want to cast every anxiety to you because you care for us. May you guide our steps in the coming days and weeks in matters that um, we need to show integrity in. May we be people who represent you not only with our lips, but with our life. And may you uh, be glorified, Lord. And may you shine through us. May people see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.